This is Champagne Problems, where we come together to explore the gray areas of drinking. This is a judgment-free zone where we can all take a look at how we make decisions about our relationship with alcohol. Welcome back, friends. Today we're speaking with Kelly Kitley. We recently met Kelly down at a conference in Florida where she was presenting on gray area drinking. Kelly's a highly sought-after speaker, author, and media expert, as well as the producer of her autobiographical short film, Gray Area, and she's a licensed social worker with a successful private practice. Needless to say, Kelly's doing big things, and we're fired up to have her on. Let's go to Kelly. Kelly Kitley, welcome to Champagne Problems. Thank you so much for having me. Of course. Well, we're honored to have you on. It was a, a pleasure meeting you down in Florida, and I'm, I'm glad you agreed to come on. Um, you, I mean, you're everywhere right now, by the way. I, I think you probably know that. Are, who's your PR? Do you do your PR? I have my own PR. You wow. know, I'm scrappy, and um, just one thing leads to another, and it's exciting. It's, it's an opportunity to have a platform and share a message um, is really being able to to have an impact on as many people as possible. So I'm, yeah. I'm grateful for it. I'm killing it. Well, you're grinding. It's, Thank uh, you. Thank it's you. really fun to watch because, man, um, I obviously love your message, love everything you're doing. Um, so, all right, we're going to start with some rapid fire questions to, to get to know you. Um, kind of standard of what we do. So here we go. You ready? All right, I'm ready. What was your first live concert and where was it? Uh, Grateful Dead at Soldier Field when I was 16. Oh, wow, <laughs> Lord. Uh, Gotta be a memorable have, one. You might take the cake on yeah. that one. <laughs> what food's your guilty pleasure? Uh, peanut butter M&M's. Yes. What can make you lose your temper? My kids. Ah, of course. <laughs> of course. <laughs> Favorite comedy movie? Ooh, you're stumping me I on know, that. That's a, that's a tough one. Mm. <laughs> Considering I, know, hard, I love like them. everything nonfiction and <laughs> documentary and um, gosh, oh, Step Brothers. <laughs> oh yeah, love it, love it. The outtakes of that movie might even be yeah. better than the movie. <laughs> um, what's your favorite vacation spot? The Jersey Shore. Oh, lovely, <laughs> lovely. All right, here we go. So now let's dive into some real content. Your profession as a social worker, where did that passion begin? Um, you know, I grew up above my parents' bar, so I feel like <laughs> that was very uh, social worky hanging lots, out. Lots bar. of people need to help <laughs> around those parts. Yeah. Um, but really, it came from my Catholic upbringing. I went to, I grew up in the city in Chicago, and public school really wasn't an option. My parents weren't even Catholic, but. Um, it was down the street from our house. And so at a young age, we were taught about social justice and volunteering. And I really connected with that and um, always found myself loving working in community. And um, I felt that people who were going through something were really vulnerable. And I appreciated the authentic piece to them and really connected with them. And so it wasn't until, you know, I was getting ready to go to college that I noticed that you could make a career out of it. Yeah. So um, at a really young age, I just was really attracted to working in community and social work. And so you've always been on that path. I, I really have. I mean, I, I loved, um, it's funny because I married an actor. He's a Chicago actor. Um, and when I was younger, I loved theater and musicals and thought that that's what I wanted to do. But really, I was always drawn to this other piece as well. Very cool. Well, sure. Your husband's a phenomenal actor, by the way. Oh, thank you. <laughs> he's thank he's you great so in, the, in the film. Thank um, you. <laughs> so what, part, what parts of therapy that you do would you consider your sweet spot? It looks like you, you do work with a lot of different kinds of, of issues and people. What, what's what's your sweet spot? I do. You know, it's so interesting to me because, you know, I'm a generalist practitioner and I say that my clients have kind of aged with me. And so um, when I first started out in private practice, I was working with a lot of new moms who were transitioning into parenthood and struggling with postpartum mood disorders um, and, and couples and educating about that. Um, and then, you know, when... 
I left a group practice. I was working for a psychiatrist who had told me um, if I wrote a book or published an autobiography specifically that it would really ruin my career because um, I was oh, supposed to be yeah. known as the expert, not sharing you know, yeah. my hardships. Yeah. Um, I actually did the complete opposite. Yeah, and good. so I found that my practice after I published my book really was um, women who were looking at their drinking and said, okay, I think you really get it um, outside of a clinical perspective. And um, a lot of my clients who I'd been seeing for years started getting really honest about their drinking um, after the book was published. And so um, it, it really, you know, my, my book, is about a lot of different things. Um, there's a section about my drinking. Um, but after it was published, I was on the Today Show talking about mom drinking culture. Um, and that just kind of became my niche. Um, and I didn't really plan on it. Um, I was just getting honest about my own journey with my relationship with alcohol. And it just kind of organically unfolded that way. How do those two things contrast, like the the story that you kind of lived that brought you into this passion and what you've discovered, you know, over the years, like kind of studying this and hearing other people's stories? And what's the difference between those two things? Well, you know, I studied addiction in grad school and did my yeah. internship in an intensive outpatient program. And so a lot of the people that I was working with... Um, had lost everything, had lost their job, were drinking on the job, lost relationships, had multiple DUIs. And so the, that was always like my frame of reference of like, well, I'm not that bad. Um, and I didn't have any of those qualifiers. So I kept saying like, oh, well, I drink like all my peers and, you know, I'm very social and had all these excuses. Um, and so when I started looking at my own drinking, um, which I had for most of my life, because I said my parents grew up, I grew up above my parents' bar, I grew up in a drinking culture. I was terrified of becoming an alcoholic. Um, and so I tried to manage and control my drinking most of my life. So when I did ultimately decide to give it up, for me, it was like, I, I had somebody say, one of my best friends who got sober a couple months before me said, you know, it doesn't matter. Do I qualify or don't I qualify as a right. quote alcoholic? It's how's this working for you in your life? You know, yeah. and it seems to be a continuous problem for you. Um, and so what would it be like if you gave it up? And I was terrified um, of like never. I remember going to a meeting being like, how do you go to a wedding and not drink? Or like, how do you go to a concert and not yeah. drink? It's I impossible. Fathom it. <laughs> now I'm like, how did I go to those things? <laughs> that's right. As, yeah. as drunk as I was. Um, and so that's really helped me as a clinician now. And that's really been my mission is to educate about, you know, people not needing to hit rock bottom to quit drinking or for them to lose everything before they start looking at their drinking. But more of like, there is this spectrum of alcohol abuse and um, people fall along that that line. And so how can we start educating earlier um, in this normalization of drinking? And yeah. a lot of people, you know, being able to say, like, how, how can I look at my drinking in a different way? And whether that's moderation management or, you know, abstinence or whatever it might be, it's a journey. And so um, I have found that a lot of the way I practiced before in terms of treating addiction in intensive outpatient or inpatient programs is very different than the way that I'm working individually with clients. Yeah. You know. What did your process look like personally? Was it like a spontaneous thing or like when you started kind of questioning your relationship with alcohol was it like oh gotta quit right now or was this like a thing that took place over over time and if if that is the case what what did that look like sure so you know i was a binge drinker and i would it, it was like good kelly and bad kelly you know it was like yeah. i was running marathons and i was um you know having kids and and doing all these things that i felt really positive about and felt that that I was doing a good job with. Um, but then I'd have like one or two nights that I went off the deep end and drank too much and said things I regretted and woke up the next morning and hated myself and um, didn't like who I was to my 
husband or my kids. And, um, you know, but then I would say, okay, you're, you're going to write off drinking. You're going to get back on track. You're not going to drink as much. And I played this game of like not drinking or being able to have two or three glasses of wine one night. And then, you know, going out for an, a girl's night five days later, and then repeating the pattern and then writing off drinking again. So it was like, if I wasn't drinking, I was okay. It was when I decided to drink that it became problematic or just like the, the obsession of thinking about it. Like you can only have two glasses of wine or you can only drink on Tuesday and Friday and all these like rules that I put in place. And then I had a case of the fuckets and was like, well, I'm going to remove trying to manage and control it and just like organically drink. And then, um, I was like 34, I think. And I had four small kids and I recognized that, um, I'd come home from work as a clinician and five o'clock would hit. And I would be like, whoo, you know, this bedtime bath homework is so stressful. Let me have a glass of wine to kind of take the edge off. And then that became a habitual thing that I engaged in. And it wasn't like I was blackout drunk every night or anything. It was just habitual, half a bottle of wine. Um, and then the next day I'd be like, Ooh, I should probably do better tonight. And then I just found myself repeating the pattern. Um, and so when I did finally give up drinking, it wasn't, a rock bottom moment. It wasn't, you know, something that I was like, I, I'm never drinking again. That too kind of happened organically. Um, my girlfriend and I were working out at a CrossFit class and she had um, gotten sober two months before me. I think I, not, I think I was drinking the night before and was like ready to puke mid burpee. And uh, <laughs> after the class, she said, Hey, how's your drinking been? And I just started sobbing and um, wow. said, you know, I, I was struggling and she, um, it was a really spiritual moment. We were standing outside and it started raining. Um, and she's like, well, why don't you try not drinking today? And do you want to go to a meeting with me referring to AA? Um, and I was like, whoa, that's really extreme. And I was like, I have bottles of wine open at my house and I feel like I have to drink those before I make the decision. <laughs> <laughs> like, or you could pour them out. So um, I drove home and I had no clue. And I just said to my husband, you know, I'm really struggling. I think I need to go to an AA meeting. And he was like, or you could like try drinking less. And, you know, so it was, it was this conversation of like, I don't know what I'm going to do, but I'm going to go to this meeting with her and see what happens. Um, And I was still pretty ambivalent. I had been to AA before and it didn't really jive with me. And I didn't feel you know, bad enough to be somebody in the room. And, um, and then this women's meeting I went to just felt so welcoming and so many moms that was, that was really important for me as I was navigating being a wife and a mom potentially sober. Um, and I just, as they said, keep coming back. And I did. And next year it will be 10 years. Holy cow. Right. That's so cool. Um, just to our listeners, uh, a lot of that story Kelly just told is in her short film, Gray Area. Check it out. We will dive into that a little bit more in a second, but just wanted to refer that. Um, also, I, I want to go back just a second because you did mention that growing up above a bar and in a, in a pretty heavily or heavy drinking culture, it made you look at your drinking throughout your life. That is not what I would have guessed you would have said growing up in that environment. Most people find it to be super normal and and don't look at it. Yeah. And, and so don't I try was. to Yeah. I mean I would love to know how that came about inside of your, you know, psyche as to look at it more as opposed to just accepting it. That's so interesting that you picked that up because you would you would one would think that right, it was so normalized that this was just what I thought other people did. Um But my mom was at the height of her. So I have two substance abusing parents. One is in recovery. One is not, not surprising. Um, And I'm the oldest of five and two of us are in recovery. Um, And my mom was at the height of her drinking when I had my first drink, which was a blackout when I was 12. Um, And her response to that was, um, you know, addiction runs in our family and you just better be careful. And it was a very like fear-based punishing kind of conversation. And so that really scared me. And so from that point on, I was 
really trying to like look at is it okay that I'm drinking? How much mm -hmm. am I drinking? And I mean, to drink that way for over 20 years was <laughs> exhausting. Yeah. Um, but it was, it was like, and, and I saw the way my parents drank and argued ar around drinking. And, you know, ultimately my parents ended up getting divorced once my mom got sober and they had mm -hmm. been married over 20 years. Um, so I was fearful that was going to happen to me because I met my husband in our, my parents' bar. Yeah. <laughs> um, so there was a, lo a lot of similarities um, and just feeling really bad about drinking the first time um, based on how my mom responded and based on the fact that I didn't just have a drink, you yeah. know, that I really was on a mission like, oh, you're supposed to get drunk when you drink. Mm-hmm. Tell us a little bit about your book. Like, I know you, you referenced the fact that there's only like a little part in there that's about your drinking. Mm -hmm. So what, what, what's the what's rest it of about? it about? Because <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I always like to ask these questions because it's like, you know, one of the mission, part of the mission of our podcast is to normalize these conversations and talk about the other stuff. Thank you. Yes. You know? So yeah. it, what's your other stuff? Sure. <laughs> Uh, well, it started above my parents' bar. We've got four hours. But, you know, I, as I had mentioned, you know, growing up above my parents' bar, there were a lot of like weirdos that hung around. And, um, you know, my parents, I think, did at one point said, we have five kids. We need to get away from this bar <laughs> culture and moved us out into like the rural suburbs of Chicago. Um, and there was a man who drank with my dad, who was like his handyman and was around the house. Um, and I was 10 um, and he had a daughter my age and kind of classic like grooming stuff, right? Like mm. he was very, uh, everybody in our family loved him. He was so adventurous and um, really like liked playing with the kids, meaning myself and my siblings in terms of like imaginary play around the house and stuff. Nothing that was um, alarming, but um, I had slept over at his house one night because he had a daughter my age and um, she had gone to bed and he stayed up and had sexually abused me um, uh. as a 10 year old. And that's really, um, you know, something that, as I said, going to Catholic school, they didn't teach us about like sex ed. Um, and this man, I didn't, you know, didn't have sex with me, but a, like inappropriate touching, uh, uncomfortableness continued to come around our family afterwards. And I decided to say something um, to my dad about it because it was his friend. Um, and he didn't believe me and said if, you know, it was happening that I should probably stop sleeping at his house. And again, another like very shame based approach to that. Um, and that morphed into an eating disorder as a coping mechanism. So trauma is part of my story yeah, as well really. as, um, you know, sexual abuse and an eating disorder. And it, it was always something that, you know, my mom was very therapeutically savvy in terms of like, she saw a therapist and read all these self-help books. And so um, when my eating disorder started to develop, she was quick to get me into therapy. Nice. And that's when I had a reparative relationship with an adult that believed me and was able to explain to me and educate me a little bit about, you know, childhood sexual abuse. And um, my parents really never talked about it again after that. Um, was your mom so, in recovery at that point? She was not. Wow. She was not. She didn't um, stop. Uh, and her recovery looks different. You know, I she said that she was at my brother's confirmation and had asked God to help her stop drinking and asked God to be her sponsor. And she never picked up again. Nice. Um, and so when I heard that story, I was like, oh, maybe I should try that. <laughs> and I kept trying and failing. And, you know, for me, it was really about community. But um for her, yeah, I think there was just like she was in her own shit and um, wasn't really able to be there for me. I'm grateful she was able to get me the help that I needed. Yeah. Um, but that was really transformative for me and feeling, you know, I kept a journal throughout that whole process and had read other women's books about being in recovery from sexual trauma and um, knew that I always wanted to write a book because I felt so 
much healing in reading others' stories um, of women coming through on the other side. And so I started the book probably 10 years before it was published. And in, in between that had four kids and would pick it up and put it down and, you know, um, got to a long part of my story and and this piece about my drinking just came about when I got sober and I was like okay it's time to write this book now and then really you know worked on it hard for a year wow hey thanks for sharing that I know it's public knowledge obviously being in your book but we appreciate your vulnerability and sharing that experience as a child very powerful so your book um that's a timeline of your life, it sounds like. And then the movie is a very kind of windowed piece of your life. Is there any, or are there any plans on expanding the movie out? Um, I am trying to grind that out. You know, yeah. I, a lot of feedback that we got, you know, it's a short film, it's 18 minutes. It focuses on my marriage and the height of my drinking, um, with our young children. And, um, it's a lot of money to make a movie and (laughs) you know, the feedback (laughs) that I got was, gosh, we want to know, like, how does she do it? Yeah. We want more. We want more. And so um, I'm pitching it and, you know, trying to find somebody to pick it up as a feature or series. I think it's really relevant um, in terms of, you know, just women in particular with small kids have experienced throughout the pandemic. And, um, and, yeah, I just need a lot of money and I need a production company to pick it up because, you know, truthfully, a movie like this hasn't been made since When a Man Loves a Woman, when Meg Ryan um, had a drinking problem and went to rehab. Um, it's like that was 20 something years ago. So um, it's time. So if yeah. you know of anybody or anybody listening who's in the movie industry, yeah, I'm yeah. open. I'm ready to make that feature. Absolutely. How do you personally define gray area drinking? I describe it as this area between a non-drinker and I'm always nervous to say the word alcoholic because it's not even a clinical term. (laughs) Yeah, I don't like it either. (laughs) But somebody who qualifies as having substance use disorder or um, alcohol use disorder. So they might not meet qualifiers um, diagnostically for being dependent on alcohol or having a lot of disruptions in their life um, or having, you know, withdrawal symptoms or, um, you know, disruption in their career, but more of like an emotional and spiritual bankruptcy of looking at gray area drinking of more of like a habitual, consistent um, activity, so to speak, um, that they don't really think about that. It's just, you know, something that has been normalized most of their life until they start recognizing, like, I don't feel good. I might not be eating as well or exercising as well. I might be drinking more than I would like to drink. Um, And so there are different levels of that, of women that I see in my practice that might not meet qualifications for diagnostic um, criteria, but more so of maybe alcohol is not really working for them as, as much as it was before. Yeah. Yeah. Because it sounds more like... It's less of a criteria on the drinking and more of a mentality, like almost a curiosity. Yeah, yeah. Um, or at least that's what an outsider looking at someone would want that want it to be, right? Yes. Because because yeah. I mean we always talk about the spectrum and the addiction spectrum and 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 you know when you visualize that I'm not sure there's an actual visual that we can actually refer to and point at, but we know that one far end is the use disorder area and the heavy dependency and addiction space. And then everything below that I've always considered kind of to be the gray area because it's just gray. I mean, I, I I run into this problem or not, I don't even know if it's a problem all the time. I'm a clinician too. And and I work in private practice and I'll have these people, you know, come, come to me or come to the, come to my office and they don't meet criteria for even a mild substance use disorder or alcohol use disorder but their drinking's habitual mm-hmm. and it and it's causing negative consequences in their life sure so th- that that's kind of like where i where i see it it's like okay well it, this is something that's been a pattern and 
you know, we can I we, we can identify the pattern. Mm-hmm. And and the fact that you're looking at it means that there's probably something there that that you don't like or you don't want. Well, a negative consequence is subjective. So it's yeah. it's them saying, you know, maybe I'm not sleeping very well. It's not exactly. things to point at yeah. like you got arrested. It's Yeah. Correct. Yeah. And and I think that for me who focused on my drinking my entire life, like I ha- I was very self-aware and I looked at, you know, how much I was drinking and I wrote it down and I tried to see like, well, how did wine work for me versus tequila, you know? And so it's very obsessive. <laughs> so for me, when people say, you know, oh, I've never really looked at my drinking, you know, it, it it is an opportunity for us to say like, well, what are you thinking about or feeling before you grab that glass of wine or yeah. how do you feel afterwards? And so- Look, if you were eating a sleeve of cookies every night for, you know, <laughs> a week, I would look Don't. at that behavior too. Like, yeah, you got um, a camera in my house or something? <laughs> <laughs> Been having a major Oreo meltdown recently. It's not good. <laughs> so yeah. I think it's, you know, looking at it more as a whole health perspective and dry January, right? Like that's a big societal buzzword of people kind of drying out because they've been drinking um, and imbibing over the holidays. It's, you know, people who can give it up, you know, um, and, and have success after those 30 days and come back and report like, I'm sleeping better. I have so much clarity. I feel healthier. Well, February 1st comes and, you know, they start drinking again and are back to the same patterns. So, um, as much as I think some of those lenses, so to speak, are good, I think it also gives us an opportunity to evaluate, like, what's a lifestyle that we want to live instead of like, how can I prove to myself that I don't have a problem? Because I think oftentimes people think, well, if I'm not drinking every day or during the day, I don't have a problem, you know? Um, But sometimes it's just looking at a whole health perspective. Right. And that's, that's, I mean, our missions are very aligned in that space. I mean, that's kind of what our entire podcast is around is about is not looking at alcohol as if, am I this, am I that it's how is it influencing my mind, body, and soul. And a lot of times we apply that to the kind of six main pinnacles of wellness and how is it influencing, you know, sleep, exercise, work relation, you know, those kinds of things. But the whole point, like, like you've said many times, and I know that you're the whole a lot of your mission is is to normalize this and it's to get people who ordinarily wouldn't talk about it or look at it to do so mm-hmm. and we do that by not throwing labels and shame and guilt and diagnoses in the conversation it's just how you know how is it how is it influencing me in certain ways and that's opening the door and it's clearly showing to be true mm-hmm. absolutely and i think you know we may get to a point that alcohol becomes similar to the way cigarettes are now, you know, where it's like we knew what it was doing and we still did it. And, you know, that now there's a ban on it and it's looked at more as I mean, my kids think people are so bad if they smoke. You know? Know. Like, we don't have to look at it that way, but, you know. Vape equivalent <laughs> of alcohol is going to be like, how are they going to come up with some like healthier way to drink alcohol? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, they're well, trying. Figure, they're we trying figure with that all shit the out. Organic wines and yeah. Well, you know, it is interesting because um, I am I'm showing the film in partnership with um, a woman who is a sober coach. Her name is Heather Lowe, and she. Um, yeah, no, we we follow Heather. Okay. Um, ditch the drink, and so we're yeah. doing um, a an event together, and we're doing it at an alcohol free brewing company. And, you know, someone who came in through AA, it was like people, places and things you don't want to associate, you know, don't drink non-alcoholic beer. Uh Yeah. And so and she's very much of the mindset of like, if you like the taste of it and, you know, it's not triggering for you, go ahead. So we went to um, to see the venue and the guy who opened the brewing company um, poured us a glass of non-alcoholic beer from the tap. And I had a, I was like, oh, it's almost been 10 years. Yeah, I've never really had, you know. I'm afraid to do it. I had a sip and I was like, 
Oh my God, that tastes so good. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and really, it was then I felt like, well, should I have? Should I not have? What if that really did have alcohol in it? I was like, why do I don't even need to go there? I've gone yeah. this long without, you know. Um, and so I think even in that culture, there's a spectrum of people. Some people have to write it off completely and can have no association, and some people like the taste and it's not triggering for them and they can drink a non-alcoholic wine or beer. Um, and it's not yeah. for us to kind of judge and evaluate that. It's like, what works for me might not work for you and vice versa. Yeah. I'd be spending like a thousand dollars a month on non-alcoholic beer. <laughs> well, I mean, and, I, and I'm the example where I haven't had a drink in close to 17 years and I have one and maybe one and a half non-alcoholic beers just about every night. No way. Yeah. Every uh, night I cry, and it's about the crack, the twist, and the gulp, and wait. the burp. No. Uh -huh. and, that, and that's it. Like I don't drink any more than that. I, I feel like shit after I drink one anyway. It's just the it's just the ritual. But well, maybe we should look at your non-alcoholic drinking. <laughs> yeah, Robbie. <laughs> Let's talk about it. I'm gonna go to non-alcoholic beer rehab. Well, it's well, and look, I mean, I have, an I have an obsessive personality anyway, so it's like, you know, insert what is it? You know, I, I was obsessed with exercise. I was obsessed with, you know, reading self-help books. You know, some are more healthier than others. But Sitting I'm not a, shotgunning them. Sitting in a group in a treatment center. What's your drug of choice? Uh, <laughs> Non-alcoholic beer. I feel like crap every morning, but it's part of my ritual. That's part of the deal. <laughs> yeah. Oh, uh, it, it doesn't no. make me feel like crap. It just doesn't. Any more than one makes you just drinking. It's like drinking more than one soda. Like it doesn't feel good. Yeah, yeah. Anyway. I can't have one of anything, so. Yeah, <laughs> right. Don't you have two? Your film, are there film festivals and awards, and are you getting some, some real recognition for it? Yeah, you know, we, um, the company, uh, that was not my intention. I wanted to make the film just to use as a visual for my speaking engagements. Um, but as I mentioned, my husband's an actor and he was on board with doing that as well. But the production company that we hired to make the film, that's what they do. They make films, they submit them to festivals, they win awards, and um, they submitted us to probably two dozen film festivals and i'd say more than half we won awards for in terms of um you know impact and social justice and relevant cultural topics and things like that so that's been really fun um you know to be able to you know get validation that like yes this is having an impact and this is a thing and people align with it we were just getting into some good cultural talk, and I took a side note just to kind of promote your film Thank one more time. You. But Thank let's you. let's do let's do dive back into kind of the 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 cultural conversation around the alcohol stuff because I think that is the the meat of our conversations. Um, and as far as um, you know, the culture kind of shifting, and I know we we uh, we often equate this to the the tobacco shift. Um, I mean, we are seeing it. I mean, yeah. huge industry spikes in the alcohol-free space, and and obviously any of us on social media are seeing a lot more and more coaches and 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 motivational stuff around changing our mindset and looking at it very differently. And I mean, do you, I assume you agree with that. And and do you see it sustaining and and continuing? Absolutely. I mean, there's a whole sober curious movement right. of people just wanting to know what it's like and how to make behavior changes. And so, um, you know, more and more celebrities are coming out about living alcohol free life an alcohol free life. And the reason I bring that up is because they have such a huge platform to be able yeah. to impact people and to normalize some of this too. You know, I was on the Drew Barrymore show a couple of years ago and um, shared my story and on the side, she was like, well, it's not public yet, but I haven't been drinking. And then last year she came, you know, came out. <laughs> so to speak. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I haven't been drinking and she doesn't call it alcoholism and, and you know, is more looking at it as like I'm engaging in self-care as a means of my own recovery. Um, and, you know, I thought she was sober for a long time because I know that she had yeah. Some yeah. the childhood issues, stuff. But, yeah. Yeah. But, um, you know, I think that that's amazing that 
people are talking about it on these large platforms because there's a different awareness now. So yeah. I think it's going to continue and it's really exciting. Yeah. I've never really put a lot of thought into the idea of this kind of following suit with what happened with tobacco, but I, I think you're right. I think that's definitely going to happen. Well, and the science is backing it up too. I mean, yeah. every day a new article comes out around, you know, they've been, they started the studies a decade ago, fortunately, yeah. and now we're starting to see the results and, and people are understanding that it, it, it ain't good. Yeah. You know, yeah. well, we just... and, you know, too, I look at my own kids, you know, I have two teenagers and two younger children, but, um, I even think, and maybe it's just because I'm sober and I've taught, you know, educated them along the way at a really young age. But I mean, I'm surprised to hear like they didn't go to a party where there was alcohol at homecoming, you know? And I'm like, what? Nerd. (laughs) Like somebody's older siblings didn't get you guys beer. And they're like, no. No, we all just smoke weed now. It's like. We're good. Nobody drinks anymore. That makes you act like an idiot. Edibles now, right? So you see these generations of the drug of choice shifting, right? Like I think in our my parents' generation, it was cocaine. You know, in the the 70s and early 80s, and you know, and smoking and and you know, drinking for my our generation. You know, and now, yeah, pot is so normalized. It's like the new smoking cigarettes. God. Well, I mean, and maybe that's something we could touch on real quick because it's uh, it falls obviously into the mental health space. I mean, where we are as a society, as a culture. I mean, that it, 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 we're it's phenomenal that we are as a as a whole practicing harm reduction. But the yeah. fact is, we're kind of shifting into something else, you right? Know, right. Or many other things. Right. Well, and it comes down to like escapism. You know, I right. mean. Is really hard right now, and there's a lot of collective trauma going on that we're privy to, whether it's happening to us in our own community or seeing it from a distance, you know. And so, I think there's a a strong desire for people to escape a little bit. And so, whatever way you're escaping, you know, I hope that we can choose healthier behaviors. But the reality is, if there's a way to kind of disengage mentally, through a drug, I think people are looking for that. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and I mean, I catch myself, you know, walking into my place and sitting on the couch and just thumbing through my phone. It's the worst. I mean, (laughs) mean, talk about it. It's, it's more effective than a drug to escape. Yeah. Yeah. It's, Uh, and and so I notice myself doing it out of boredom, you know, totally. When it's like, well, there's nothing else to do. It's like watching TV. You know? It's so bad. God. I mean, I, I was listening. Uh, Andrew Huberman was talking about it the other day about like the slow, like dr- dopamine drip <laughs> that we get from scrolling. I mean, and it, but it does. It's like I, I feel like if you do it for a certain, like a like any amount of time, it's like it just gives you this like low grade depression. Yeah. It's like yeah. However. Ugh. I'm going to be devil's advocate because yeah, please, I need for it. me, like, and, and I hear a lot of people saying that for me, I actually feel the opposite because of the people I choose to follow yeah. um, or the yeah. articles that I read. I mean, yeah, for, I sure. wasn't even on social media until I started my business seven years ago. And my friends were like, you have to be on social media <laughs> if you are running a business. And it's been a free marketing tool for me just in terms of like posting different articles and and using it as a platform to educate as well. And so a lot of times, like if I'm kind of bored or, you know, having a bad day and I see a positive meme or mantra or something like that, I'm like, wow, I actually feel better than I did just kind of sitting in my own head. So, but I do think we need to be mindful of it, right? Like we've even tried engaging in putting it in the drawer at home for an hour so that it's like out of sight, out of mind. Yeah. Um, We're using an abstinence-based. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, there you go. little model. Moderation management. That's true. I remember somebody, I can't remember, it was one of these celebrities or something, but had a quote up and said, you know, when I sit down on on a couch or wherever and start thumbing through stuff, and and obviously it's not all positive things, and it can be yeah. the news or it can be whatever else. There, she was like, I, I I I put it down and I get up and it feels like I just ate a double chili cheeseburger. Yeah, 
<laughs> like yeah. this, just this like Heaviness. weight yeah. and this brain, like just fog that you were just so in stimulated and engaged in that little screen, and then you put it down, and it's like, Ugh. yeah, true, true. Yeah, you have a major uh, passion towards. Uh, the, the, the betterment, the growth, the treatment of women. And I just wanted to ask, what do you think one of or whatever comes to mind is, is some of the most negatively influential factors uh, kind of in our culture and society towards women right now? I mean, if we want to refer this or relate this to alcohol, that's fine. Yeah. Or just mental health in general. Yeah. Um, you know, I have really seen the toll it's taken on women in terms of mothers, parents, you know, or not parents, mothers specifically, and whether they choose to work outside the home or their sole responsibility is working in the home. I think that there is a, an idea of needing to do it all, be it all, do it perfectly, which creates a lot of anxiety for women, not feeling good enough, not feeling supported potentially, um, thinking everybody's doing it better than them. Um, and that could be through social media, that could be the neighborhood they live in. Um, but I would say that that is a common thread that I have seen um, in my practice and through speaking engagements and you know, people reporting, like, I just feel like I can't keep my head above water as a mom, um, you know, and needing to do all the things, right? Like exercise, take care of my mental health, um, be a good partner, be a good spouse, do well in my job. And not that that doesn't affect men as well, but there's a difference, I think, in just the way we're wired and maybe the pressure women put on themselves internally um, as well as societally. That's fascinating because then it turns it around on, well, I mean, I guess I would ask you, you know, know the the solution or the mm -hmm. the assistance or treatment around that is it more about changing societal pressures or is it more about how to handle societal pressures oh you guys you guys are fantastic interviewers um it is it's internal i think i mean externally sure but internally like i've gone the other way i'm like do we really have to put up christmas decorations <laughs> <laughs> Let's you skip it this year. send me the link of the christmas presents you want you know like uh, and i i use that the term caring less with a lot of my clients and i practice it myself because i i think that's why i drank right like more habitually towards the end because oh, yeah. i feel like i could never catch my breath and so changing my expectations of like i can only do so much and there's only you know, so many hours in the week. And so how do I break that down? You know, and those six things that you mentioned, right? Like health and relationships and um, just being able to get a little bit of all of it and knowing like, if I say no to something else, I get to say yes to something for myself that makes me feel better to do all the other things. Yeah. So I really think it's like caring less, being more gentle with ourselves, lowering expectations, um, cause that we can change like immediately, you know, yeah, it, we, we it, have the ability it, to change it. Yeah. Yeah. We have the ability. Yeah. <laughs> um, and it, it may take a lot of practice for it to stick, but you know, once we can start doing that, I think it's a ripple effect into our community and to society and, um, uh, but it's got to start with us and, and how we're practicing it. Awesome. Awesome answer. I have three kids, 10, five and two and you know, thinking about them growing up in this environment scares the shit out of me. Um, I obsess over it all the time and, you know, you use that also to kind of hold me accountable for my own mental health and, and process addiction issues. <laughs> what do you think we can do societally to kind of at least attempt to create an environment that you know, increases the probability of our kids growing up in a mentally healthy, kind of addiction-free culture? Well, I think first and foremost, um, what they see at home is like the first step, right? Like what's being modeled at home. And so if as a parent, we are 
taking care of ourselves and talking about feelings and modeling, you know, good self-care and exercise that like, that's what they're seeing. So that's going to feel more normalized. Yeah. I think with our kids in school, you know, I'm so thrilled to hear about them learning about like meditation in class and like, um, a, a, a cool down corner, I think is, is one of the things, one of my like kids that. in their class, you know, and, and we're talking about it more and normalizing it more that like, even one of my adult clients was like, gosh, my 10 year old said they wanted to see a therapist because they wanted to talk about some issues that were going on. And it's like, Great. you know, I mean, we don't want to over normalize it. Yeah. Not yeah, my therapist. My yeah. Therapist. <laughs> Um, but I think on the front line, you know, um, and just being a product of my own environment, right? Like my parents drank heavily and I couldn't wait to be able to do that. Um, because I saw that and there's, there seemed something, something was very cool about that. And, you know, they were very social. Um, and, and they also modeled healthy behaviors too, in some respects. And so I think the more open we are, and, and I respect some, pe some people that I met through the program don't share with their kids um, about their own addiction issues um, and kind of, I don't know, protecting them in a way or feeling like they don't want that to be a focus. Um, but for me, it's been the opposite in saying like, Look, you have a, pre, a a genetic predisposition. I do believe coming from a long line of uh, people with addiction in my family. Um, so let's talk about that, you know. And um, sadly, I can't prevent it. Even with psychoeducation, you know, they're going to experiment, and you know, um, and it is. It's really scary. Um, but I think we're doing the best that we can, um, especially as parents, you know, I do believe that even for some of the crazy shit I experienced, you know, growing up, like they were doing the best that they could. I mean, Patrick and I are both in the recovery space and both have kids, right? So we, yeah. we, we face those questions all the time. It's how I'm much I'm just like, if you ever touch anything, I'm going <laughs> to Right. Well, there's that method you. too. <laughs> <laughs> there's threat. You can threaten. Sure. Well, uh, and, and I think too, like their dad drinks, you know, he doesn't drink problematically. And I, I, I think he's been good about looking at his own drinking too, you know, in terms of, and I try not to project that. And certainly, you know, um, <laughs> them seeing like, well, why can dad drink, but mom can't. And it's, yeah. it comes down to choice and it comes <laughs> down to, you know, mom and dad act very differently when they drink alcohol and, you know, uh, so it you don't want to know. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I, I'm really careful to not look at it as like, like I mentioned with the cigarettes, like you're a bad person if you drink or smoke, you know, yeah. that um, I don't want them to think that of, you know, anybody's choices that they make. It's just that we have different, we made different decisions. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Well, like you said, it boils down to mirroring. I mean, if, you know, if, if your husband was indeed, you know, a full blown mess, <laughs> then we'd be having a different conversation, but mirroring actual healthy drinking and, and, yeah. you know, good management over it. That, that's, sure. that's, that's good. I would assume Sure, sure. You know, it doesn't matter that you can't and he can, it's that it's both being mirrored healthily. We got two final questions for you. What are the three biggest benefits for you personally of giving up alcohol? Oof. Clarity. Um, I would say that I still have mental gymnastics, you know, um, in terms of whatever is in front of me. But when I make a decision, um, I feel confident in the decision that I made and not feeling blurred in terms of, was it because I was hungover? Did I make that decision drunk? Or, you know, just overall clarity is one. Um, two, I still struggle with anxiety and depression, um, but it is the most consistent my mood has been um, in my entire life. And so that is awesome. a huge benefit. Um, and then third, um, I get choked up every time I say this. Bring it on. Um my four kids and my husband. I mean, I, at the height of my drinking was like, I'm leaving. I don't want this. I, <laughs> what did I sign up for? Um, and seriously risked my marriage in terms of just walking away. Cause I didn't like myself. 
Um, so how could somebody possibly like me? And the fact that, you know, our marriage isn't perfect, but we have done a lot of work around it. And um, just the fact that my husband, Ryan, has supported my sobriety um, has been the biggest gift to our marriage. And I was the first year was hell because I was like, there's no way so much of what we did together was drinking. Um, so that has been had I known that. I mean, I probably went to signed up any earlier to stop drinking, but <laughs> I I didn't think it would turn out this way. Wow. Thank you for those. Yeah. Kelly Kitley, why do you care? I care because I've suffered in silence and it is a horrible and scary place to be. And when I stopped living in silence, um, I noticed a huge shift and I want to care for other people in a way that I cared for myself in making that transition because I just want to be surrounded by real authentic people. Awesome. Lovely. Lovely. Well, thank you for building the platform that you've built. And thank you for sharing yourself with everybody and your story. And thanks for being vulnerable and having the courage to do that because we're all about it. Yeah. You're making waves. Uh, yeah, we really making appreciate you. Big waves you over there, Kelly Kitley. <laughs> appreciate you coming on and hanging with us today. Thank you so much. The information and opinions shared on this podcast are solely those of the hosts and guests and are not a substitute for medical advice. If you feel like you may need professional help, here are some resources. For the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration hotline, call 1-800-662-4357 or visit smsa.gov. For listeners in the Charlotte, North Carolina community, visit dilworthcenter.org or call 704-372-6969 or visit theblanchardinstitute.com or call 704-288-1097.